0: From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. I'm Tony Epstein... Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together.
1: So where to start?
0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on
2: WTDR. How do you
0: like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our
1: stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good
0: luck. We care about your world. My guest is Jennifer Dumper. She's a dream explorer and writer and the founder of the Onera Nauticum. Did I say that right? You did, I'm very impressed. (laughs) Which is an international organization that explores the phenomenological experience of dreams as a means of experimenting with mind. She also developed the concept and practice of liminal dreaming, surfing the edges of consciousness using hypnagogic and hypnopompic dream states. Jennifer Dumper also lectures and leads workshops all over the world, and she's the author of a fascinating new book, Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep. Jennifer Dumper, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You say the urge to play with consciousness is hardwired into the human psyche and that it's through consciousness that we explore the world and all our feelings and thinking and imaginal aspects of our experience. How did all of that begin for you?
1: That's an excellent question. I started playing a lot with hypnagogia and hypnopompia years ago. I had already been doing a lot of work with dreams, and I I started to realize that the dream spaces between awake and asleep were really fascinating realms to experiment with. And so I started going into those places, and it's an amazing reflection on mind to be in such unusual states that are so different from the sort of subject-object relationship that we mostly have with the world. And that really started to swirl in a lot with imagination. Imagination is sort of a faculty of perception, that's what the Sisi say. And so much of what happens in liminal dream kind of involves imagination. It's kind of like a kaleidoscopic tour through your own imagination, memory, thought. And I started to develop what I call in the book liminal mind, realizing how much I'm kind of thinking with my imagination all the time, how much I'm perceiving um, that's kind of a poorly kind of answer, but it's a very complicated question.
0: Well, I love that notion of the imagination as a faculty of perception. That's pretty foreign to our culture.
1: Very much so. I mean, we very much devalue imagination. Oh, you just imagined that, or imagination as a thing for children. As I said, the CPs call it a faculty of perception, and they say that it's the only one with which we can perceive the divine, since you can't really directly experience divinity, their idea of divinity, then the only way that you can perceive it is through imagination, and so, therefore, it's sort of the most important sense. And, you know, really, so much of how we perceive the world is through imagination, even vision, which we totally value, right? Oh, I see as a way of saying I understand, but even vision, entails an enormous amount of imagination. A lot of what we see is what we imagine is there, rather than what we're actually seeing.
0: Right, and there's a saying that only the heart perceives reality rightly. The rational mind does not perceive reality at all. It, it interprets, actually, that's where imagination comes in to help us interpret the reality that we're perceiving through our five physical senses, and only through our heart do we perceive things rightly.
1: That's great. I love that. You know, probably what I love about the liminal dream space, and in the same way as perceiving via imagination, is the relaxing of the ego. Like you just said, you know, it's like so much of our moving through daily world is the very firm grasp of our forward mind, you know, the self that we think we are, or the self that we want to be, or, you know, we operate so firmly through all of that. And so much of what happens to us or what we see is based on that, you know, in liminal dream space, since it's sort of non-narrative, you don't tend to be as much a person moving through a world, even in REM dreams, it's still like waking Life, you're still a person moving through the world. which is weirder. You know, you might be being raised by squirrels or, you know, whatever it is. But you're still a person having experiences. Whereas in, in liminal dreams, it's kind of this non-narrative, free associative world of consciousness. And so you aren't really moving through the ego in the same way. So the experience is, is
0: really different. Well, since you brought that up, I would love to hear you talk more about that distinction. You share some of your liminal dreams in the book, and the way you narrate them, it, it still sounds like it's being narrated through a first-person perspective. And I'm wondering if there's a way that you can talk about that distinction that you just made.
1: Okay, so there are sort of levels of hypnagogia and hypnopompia. It's a little easier to talk about hypnagogia because that's hypnagogia is when you're falling asleep, and hypnopompia is when you're waking up and those spaces between awake and sleep. And since in hypnagogia, you're leading with your conscious mind. It's your conscious mind sort of slowly moving into sleep. It's easier to find the distinctions there. So kind of counterintuitively, once you get deeper into the dream, you do start to get kind of more narrative snippets. Or even in the dreams that I narrate, there are some narrative snippets of things happening to me. But a lot of it is just like hands playing the piano. I'm, I'm paraphrasing from one of the I know is in the book, hands playing a piano really fast in a spinning in a circle and the color purple. and it's kind of like I'm seeing those things happening, but that's not really what it is. It's just those things happening, those things happening without the sense that there's a me seeing them that's separate from them. you know? It's just those things. And so it's impossible to write it out as a subject writing something and make it not sound like it's me watching it so you, you kind of have to have the experience to understand what i mean and yeah there are bits like you know a bunch of guys standing around in a circle talking that's part of that same dream and that has the familiarity of like watching something like like filmic or whatever but a lot of it isn't a lot of it really is just the thing that's happening as if that's all there was does that make sense again it's very difficult to explain
0: it totally makes sense What just occurred to me while you were describing that was that when I'm experiencing or in the state of presence where I'm no longer identifying as a particular separate self, that visceral sense that I have, and again, it's not so much I because the I fades away, that sounds very much like what you're describing.
1: Yeah, very much you know, and again, it's just to sort of describe in words like this something that's not like this. <laughs> you know, and the book has a real slant toward trying to get people to try these things. You know, there's a lot of exercises, um, trying to get people to experiment with going into hypnagogia or hypnopompia and seeing what they find there. Because as much as I can, you know, talk about it, it's really the experience that that's what turns my crank. You know, the experience is the thing that's super interesting. And, you know, in the book, there's a lot of how to. I mean, and I know that a lot of books have things like that, you know, whatever, like the artist way, have things that are practices. And sometimes people do them and sometimes people don't. Sometimes people say, oh, they're just interested in kind of the ideas. But I really hope that people do try playing with this so that they can have the experience that I'm attempting to describe, you know, by talking about what it's like, by transcribing some of the dreams. And even in the time since I've written the book, you know, one of the great frustrations about writing a book is that then it is what you're thinking about all the time for a long time, and then it takes almost a year to get published. And in the time between when I finished it and now, which is only like 10 months, I've still been... Thinking about and practicing liminal dreaming. And I've had all these new experiences and I'm learning more about it all the time.
0: Well, I'm fascinated by this. I've always enjoyed dreaming. As a child around the age of nine or 10, I went through a period mm-hmm. where every night I would go into what I later learned as a hypnagogic state, where I would have these very strange and intense experiences. Mm-hmm. And since then, well, at least starting in my late teens, I've been exploring and playing with consciousness in all sorts of ways that I could, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> discover or come across. You know, from yeah. psychedelics to all sorts of meditation. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's a real relationship, I think, with the liminal dream space and with both those things that you just named, psychedelics and meditation. They're unusual states of consciousness for sure, but then there's a lot of psychedelics have that kaleidoscopic spitting sense of, you know, like sort of a tour through your inner realms and meditation does in its deeper places does drop in to, you know, where you're almost surfing back and forth between hypnagogia and meditation space, like going into, you know, where again, where the ego sort of finally shuts up the constant mattering of our you know, what the Buddhists call the monkey mind, which is, you know, always you always have your internal monologue going blah, 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 in your head. And to have the experience of it stop is pretty remarkable. And then what comes in when it stops? We were talking earlier about, you know, the ego. So I think all of those things have a lot of commonality, for sure. Mm
0: -hmm. And for the last, I would say, at least for the last dozen years, I also spend a fair amount of time in the morning in bed before I get up indulging in that sort of hypnopompic space.
1: It's my favorite thing in the whole world.
0: Yeah. For me, it's very self-indulgent, but it's also very practical because I'm incubating all kinds of things that I'm just wanting to experience.
1: Those are exactly the two adjectives I always use for self-indulgent and practical. I mean, I figure out a lot in the hypnopompic spaces. I'm lying in bed in the morning and I'm thinking about, well, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? And drifting. You know, so as I said earlier in hypnagogia, you're leading with your conscious mind. In hypnopompia, usually you're coming out of REM. So you're leading with your dream mind. And so in hypnopompia, you might start to crest to consciousness and feel like you're forming ideas and then realize that what you thought was an idea is, in fact, a dream. And so I start to think about what it is I need to figure out, a problem I need to solve, what's going to be my next move, whatever it is. And then I'm back drifting kind of into dream space, and often I'm like, oh, wait, I know. I know what it is. You know, sleep on it, right? A lot of the dream incubation practices or dream creativity practices, again, some of these exercises that I have in the book, rest on the basic premise that you probably already know the answer You know, that your mind already knows what it is you should do or, you know, what your next move should be or whatever. And it's kind of a matter of getting in touch with it, what you need to heal, whatever, getting in touch with it. And then it can kind of come to the surface. So I think that's one of the reasons that hypnopatmia and hypnagogia are both so good for that kind of problem solving, working through whatever is on your mind.
0: Yes. And there's a wonderful line in the book that really struck me and that's dancing with the subconscious. Mm. And you describe dreams as a weird form of consciousness, profoundly Mm. internal and personal, yet also in deep interplay with the external world and other people. I would love for you to talk more about that and also why we dream, you know, the biological function of dreaming.
1: So... I mean, they are very personal, and again, it really shows up in the middle dream space because you're really getting this view of whatever it is you remember, whatever it is you imagine, whatever is in, you know, prominently in your internal space. And my, you know, why is there a Mayan jungle warrior there in my dream space? And then it's very much an interplay with the world because it's whatever is in the outside world that you kind of take and store in your internal world. And then that's, you know, what you dream. And then, of course, it's also one of the most common human experiences. Every human who has ever existed has dreamed. And what a crazy, psychedelic thing to all have in common. You know, sure, we all drink and sleep and cry and laugh. All right, sure, but we all dream. And that's some weird stuff happening <laughs> that we all have in common, you know. And there is sort of the dreaming of your culture, whatever that, you know, I mean, We dream about rock stars or dreaming about, you know, Donald Trump or, you know, whatever, right? And when I talk about liminal dreaming, so much of it is liminal. Not only is it the space between awake and asleep, but sort of the space between inside and outside, right? You know, what from the outside world comes into the inside world, and you can sort of see what those things are here on the edge as you're looking at this kaleidoscopic, swirl of your dream space. Why we dream, there's a lot of different explanations, a lot of different people theorize about why we dream. The one that currently has probably the most popularity, and you know, and I, by the way, I, I don't think that they have to be mutually exclusive. I think there can be a lot of reasons why we're dreaming. One of them is that dreams help transfer short-term memory into long-term memory. So infants in the womb are in RAM most of the time, and they think that their brains are forming and partly I mean dreaming is your brain's forming it 's what from your short term memory is going to enter into your long term memory from you know your experiences is actually going to get integrated into what is your larger or more long term self One of the things I talk about when i 'm teaching workshops you know again depending on the crowd, but I often talk about how Conscious dreaming, learning to be aware of your dreams or interacting with your dreams, and I don't mean lucid dreaming, I mean conscious dreaming, I just mean thinking about it and going into it and and interacting with it, is actually the act of playing a role in the formation of your own neural pathways, you know, actively participating in what's forming in your own brain. I mean, people so often ignore what is not only an amazing state of consciousness, wonderful if you want to experiment with your own mind, not only useful, you know, harnessable in terms of like healing and creativity and problem solving and all sorts of other things, but also, you know, fundamental in how your actual brain is forming.
0: (laughs) And I love the notion of dreams and dreaming serving as a function of integrating our experiences the new experiences we're having into the body of our old experiences. And I imagine that that's all going on at a subconscious level, including all the things that we're not even aware that we're experiencing and perceiving. And that in our dream state, I think some of those things that we weren't aware of consciously, because our conscious mind is only capable of being aware of a tiny, tiny fraction of all the sensory input that's available to us, that in dreams, more things can enter into our experience. And then the dream world reinforces all of that. It's like we're having this constant conversation with the world outside and around us, engaging with our own inner dialogue about it that's informed by that. And then there's this constant cycle of reinforming each other and it's just this kind of beautiful mess and conversation. That's, that's beautifully,
1: beautifully said. And, you know, there's a, there's a Buddhist saying, and again, I'm, I'm going to be paraphrasing, but something along the lines of the realms inside your mind are vaster than the realms outside of your body.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. So back to the, the Buddhists, what you were talking about earlier about the concept of liminal. I read a book, several years ago about the bardo and they talk about the bardo as that liminal space between anything. Yeah. Not just between life and death that most people associate the bardo with.
1: Yeah, exactly. You're right. Anything, you know, in those gaps of consciousness, you know, and the in between I was I was talking to somebody the other day and he was saying, well, you know, we as humans were always fascinated With the between zones, you know, you go to the seashore, there's something fascinating about watching the ocean crashing against the land, or, you know, there's something about boundary zones or the in-between zones, where you can really see things differently. It's, It's a different perspective. And, you know, we started out this conversation talking about the liminal and liminal mind and imagination and how, you know, in the process of working through a lot of these ideas and writing this book, Really brought me to that idea of liminal mind that I think the meditators and the psychedelicists, you know, do have kind of an understanding of, you know, the ability to not be in the black and white, but to be in the zones between and see things more clearly for where they're kind of meeting or one thing is changing into the other.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Jennifer Dumper. She's a dream explorer and writer, and She's the author of this fascinating new book that we're talking about, Liminal Dreaming, Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour.
1: You know, everybody experiences hypnagogia. Not everyone does hypnopotnia If you're the kind of person who wakes up immediately, you might not experience hypnopatmia, but everyone does hypnagogia, and at least half of us do hypnopotnia. And it's extremely, extremely easy to find one of the things that I've really been enjoying is I've been having these conversations like this one, or, you know, when I've been teaching workshops, is just telling people that it's a thing. Yeah, you know, that, that experience that you have when you're falling asleep, it's actually a thing. It's got a name, you can go into it, you can open it up, you can have amazing experiences in there. That's enough for most people to actually have the experience. You know, that most people are... You know, I listened to your talk, and now I've just been having hypnagogia every night. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, and I think naturally the ideas that we're talking about—things like liminal dreaming, liminal spaces, understanding liminal mind and the play of imagination—almost just naturally arise when you start playing with these experiences.
0: Well, for a number of years now, I've been experiencing like. Just the beginnings, the inklings of liminal dreams, when I read, um, often I'll nod off as I'm reading. Mm. And I use a nook, which is a digital reader, and I'll hold it in my hand. I like to read in bed. It's my favorite place to to read. (laughs) It's a great space for me. Most of the things I I enjoy the most are in bed anyway.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Being a, a
0: self-indulgent type. yeah, um, here, here, here. So as I'm reading, often I will nod off and I'll wake up a moment later when the nook falls out of my hand and I'll realize that the last line that I thought I had read actually was not in the book. That's great. And that happens daily.
1: And that's exactly the kind of thing that I repeat myself probably much too often in the book saying is my desire that people invent their own practices, come up with their own ways of using mental dreaming like that. I think that's great. Since I wrote the book, I've been working with this practice. So with hypnagogia, for example, I'm starting to really lengthen it out and and be able to recognize different stages. So, okay, I'm I'm like 20% dreaming you know, an 80% awake, right? You know, that level of hypnagogia. And I've, I've realized that I can, you know, because I touch type, I've realized that I can sit back on my couch or in a big chair and dip into the lightest realm of hypnagogia, and I can actually type through it. So I know in the book I have voice-activated recorders. Like if I'm a little further in, you know, more along the 40% dreaming and 60% awake, I can mumble through a voice-activated recorder and narrate what's happening in the dream. But if I'm a little bit more awake but still in hypnagogia, I can actually touch-type and type what's happening in my dream, you know, so sort of communication from the other side. And, you know, it's kind of like a automatic writing process. It's kind of my version of what, you know, John Dee was doing, you know, channeling the Enochian angels, you know, back in the days of Elizabeth I, first. And it's fascinating to see, like, the differences, the differences in the kinds of hypnagogic dreams I'm having that are just below the surface of awake versus further in. Like, just below the surface of awake, there's a lot of word play, a lot of self-reflexivity on the language of the thoughts. You know, where I'm, I'm, like, playing with the sounds of words or that kind of thing. You know, and deeper in, it tends to be more... So with the voice-activated recorder dreams, there's a lot of color. There's a lot of bright color. There's a lot of, you know, like characters but that are, you know, um, a lot of that kind of spinning visual. So your practice there with the Nook, you know, I almost, I almost want you to have a voice-activated recorder next to you so that you can say what the line is.
0: I know. I wish. You know, like, I would love, you know, I had this sort of fantasy that, that my subconscious has something for me to narrate. But I'm curious, besides using a voice-activated recorder, how I could work with that as a beginning to to go deeper and to stay longer in that state?
1: Well, what you're doing with the Nook is one of the classic exercises for Figuring out what hypnagogia is, right? So you go in a hypnagogic space holding something, and as soon as you start passing out of hypnagogia and into sleep zone, you'll drop whatever it is you're holding, and that wakes you up. So that keeps you from falling asleep. And that right there is the basis of a lot of exercises for using hypnagogia. So, you know, maybe, I mean, I, you know, the voice activator recorder or writing using pen and paper or you know, whatever. Or um one of the things that I think of with my own collected writings from the other side is, you know, gathering up enough of them, you know, just an essay that's only all of that, you know. I mean, I'm not sure how interesting that would be. You know, I mean, it's definitely interesting in snippets. How interesting would it be as a as a larger text? I'm not sure. It's It's hard to know. There is a book that is out of print, but I think they actually just recently reprinted "Dreaming Like Mad." So Dion McGregor, and Dion McGregor was a, a sleep talker, a guy basically who was talking through his hypnagogia. And I think in the '70s, maybe it's the '60s. Um, it's a it's a book that's illustrated by Edward Gorey to give you a sense of the time period. But his partner would just turn on the tape recorder whenever Dion McGregor was talking through his hypnagogia, and then they published a book of just his sleep talking ramblings. But I love the idea that you would like capture these individual lines and see what's there, but then there's also, for example, the, the Jungian idea of active imagination is essentially a hypnagogia exercise. I mean, he thought that you could get in touch with what's in your unconscious and translate it into the waking world via creativity. That already was enough to reach mental balance. So, I mean, his his mode was going into, um, he didn't specify hypnagogia, although a lot of Jungian analysts who took up active imagination do use hypnagogia, and Jung may well have been using hypnagogia. You know, we know from his autobiography that he was in hypnagogia, and by the way, I recently saw a show of his art at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and it was crazy psychedelic. I was like, man, this guy is a hypnagogia tripper through and through. And what he said was go into the hypnagogic space and then keep something near you just for creativity, right? So clay for sculpting or paints, that's what he did, paints for painting or, you know, video camera if you want to, you know, uh, choreograph your own dance, and that you go into the hypnagogic space and then you work on a piece of art because that's sort of the language of the unconscious is more creativity. And so you use creativity as a way of bringing what's in the unconscious into the waking world instead of trying to do it with language. And he felt that that was one of the, the greatest things that we can do for our own mental healing, for our own mental balance, just that simple act. No need to interpret it. No need to you know, write it or do anything with it. You know, just the process, just the creative process was enough. And I actually really love that idea.
0: Do you think we actually need to document any of it or express it in some outer form to get the benefit of the experience?
1: Absolutely not definitely not. You know, a couple answers to that. One of them is uh, as you're trying to learn how to find and linger in the space, sometimes it is useful to do something more with it, but that's really more of a trick for attention. You know, whatever it is you direct your attention at is going to be whatever it is you get good at, whether that's you know, practicing piano or complaining a lot. It doesn't matter. Whatever whatever you do, whatever you, you spend your attention on, you know, you know, you are what you practice being. Whatever you spend your attention on is, is going to be what comes into your life. So if you're trying to become more active in your, in your dream life, become more of a conscious dreamer, then doing things that bring your attention to it will help you learn to be more into it. You know, so that can be, you know, drawing it or keeping a dream journal. It can be talking to other people about dreams, but it also can just be thinking about it a lot. That's fine. You know, I kept a dream journal on and off for a very, very, very long time, but I go through phases where I don't, and I'm just going into the experience, and once you can easily find the experience, I mean, at this point, I can drop into it pretty much any time. Once you can easily find the experience, you know, going into it when you're falling asleep or lingering in it when you're waking up is totally enough or or taking a nap during the day is totally enough to get the benefits. I don't think you actually have to do anything more with it. I mean, I think that doing something more with it is, is either because you're trying to use the experience towards some end, mental healing or problem solving or creativity or, you know, et cetera, or because you're trying to give enough attention to it so that you're learning how to
0: do it. I'm so envious of your ability to just drop into that state at will. And so far, I haven't been able to remember any of those lines. And I don't even know if having a voice-activated recorder would be quick enough for me to to get them.
1: Yeah, it might not be. I mean, it's, you know, I started with the voice-activated recorder in part because you know even the process of waking up and reaching for a pad and pencil is often enough to chase away the dream you know the dropping of the book the dropping of the nook from your hands onto the bed is potentially enough to chase away what the line is you know probably the first step would be trying to train yourself into not moving once you've dropped the nook you know is to not have the okay i need to pick that up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not you know, I mean you know there's all the weird little in between steps you'd probably have to take to get yourself to be able to remember what the lines are but you know I, I yeah I don't know it's and we, you know we we're talking about earlier like the deep interplay with others and yet profoundly personal everybody dreams and yet there's such different modes you know we dream so differently and more so I would say like in the hypnagogia You know, people have, a lot of people have aural experiences. It's annoying, there's only five senses oral, oral. aural. For a lot of of people, like sound is more the experience that they have in hypnagogia than visual. For a lot of people, it's extremely tactile. Some people easily have memory of it. For some people, it chases away. You know, some people, it's a sort of a dark space. For some people, it's a very light space. There's so much variance. So being able to figure out training yourself to your dream experience is part of the thing. And I talk about all of these practical ways to use it. You know, again, as further response to your question, you don't have to do anything. I mean, I think having experiences because they're cool is great. You know, if you go through hypnagogia when you're falling asleep and you remember that it was really cool, but you don't remember anything else about it, that seems fine to me. You know, like lying in bed. And giving yourself over to a pure twenty minutes or whatever it is of amazing experience is reason enough. You know, our, our days have enough work in them and enough difficulty that giving yourself over to twenty minutes of so that was a fascinating experience seems like reason enough, frankly.
0: And also it feels very healing. I mean it's it's a very blissful state.
1: Mhm. For me too.
0: So it strikes me as being very beneficial, regardless of whether we remember or not. And in the book, you talk about how it's much, much harder to remember liminal dreams than REM dreams.
1: Yes, I think they're so difficult to remember, partly because the experience is so foreign. So it's like if someone's name is you know Bob or Joe, I, I can remember that, but you know somebody who has a name that with which I'm completely unfamiliar, usually because I don't have the cultural background to have familiarity with the sounds and the names. Those are much harder names to remember, even because I don't have a familiar framework to hang it on. So partly, I think little dreams are harder to remember because the experience is so foreign. Also, because they're so fast-moving, there's so much going on. You know, it's like trying to describe the ocean by describing a drop of water. You know, I mean, even when I can pick out a particular, some set of images... Or associations, or whatever it is, from the liminal dreams. It's the tiniest fraction of it that I'm capturing because there's so much going on. And and again, one of the one of the practices. And I I do talk about an experience of this in the book, kind of my first major experience of it. I've realized that I can have several different tracks running at once. You know, at this point I'm upwards of six, <laughs> but I can have different you know dreams that are happening. Simultaneously, my, my mind is running on these different tracks, and of course, I can only explain them one at a time. And one of the one of the things that I've been playing with in my hypnagogic space is how many different things can I hold in my mind at once? How many different images? How many different sort of uh, different ideas can I hold all at once and be able to have each one have some detail? And sometimes the detail is is incredibly minute, in fact, but also have a pulled out version of them all. And that's pretty extraordinary. And again, there's just so much going on in the liminal dream and in what is comparably a really small space of time that it's hard to bring back.
0: That's another extremely fascinating thing about this liminal dreaming that you're talking about, that it's it sounds like, well, you've cultivated the ability to stay awake and aware in that state, at least to a large degree, that It seems like the liminal dream state gives our conscious mind the ability to actually integrate the subconscious mind into its awareness so that it's dramatically expanding our conscious ability.
1: Yeah, nicely said. And I very much feel that. You know, personally, I'm mostly playing with liminal dream space, playing with my mind as a form of you know, this consciousness exploration, I'm, um, you know, spelunking the inside world, you know, without necessarily a mind toward an end goal, I find that it has really changed a lot of how I'm seeing the waking world and in very interesting ways, you know. I'm really starting to kind of have some meta-perception on how much imagination is a faculty of perception, how much it is determining what I'm seeing or how I'm moving through my day, how much is... In the liminal, you know how much I'm, you know there's a sort of the new age we create our own world idea, and you know there's a spectrum in which that's true. I mean, you know, obviously if the face falls on your head, it's going to kill you, or if you're in a war-torn country, that's not of your doing. But then there is an enormous amount where we're in a feedback loop with the world, and a lot of what's happening to us is our own doing, is our own perception, and it is our own feedback. And, you know, playing with these dreams at the edge of consciousness, I'm starting to have much more awareness of that as it's happening. And it kind of takes off some of the pressure, although it puts on some of the pressure in, in different ways, but it makes me feel like much more of an active participant in my own life, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, it totally makes sense. And I have a quote here from the book. You say that we always co-create what we see and co-create what we experience. And when I ask you to approach the world with a liminal mind, I want you to consider the extent to which you co-create reality itself. And I know that controversy of that overly simplistic new age perspective that we co-create reality or we create our reality. And I would really love to go deeper into that and talk about that concept that you call liminal mind and how that works in that context and what liminal mind is.
1: Yeah, and it's a, it's a slippery idea, but for me, a really important one, is the quote that you called there is, in a lot of ways, the crux of one of the things I'm really trying to find out. So when I'm talking about liminal mind, I am trying to talk about that awareness of the sort of the slip space. I find examples often explain things better than me trying to directly say it. So, for example, if you think about just your own neighborhood, you know, if I was going to describe how to get to the hardware store from here and my spouse, who lives in the same place as I do, was going to describe how to get to the hardware store from here. We would probably give you different landmarks. You know, there's things, there's different things in the neighborhood that matter to me. I know where all the cats live. You know, I know where there's nice flowers. Uh, there's a story in that book where I have a friend who lives in the neighborhood who writes for Hot Rod magazine. And he And I were talking, and I was, you know, oh, that's the house where all the calico cats live. And he's like, oh, that's the house where there's the yellow Corvette. And we started talking, and he's like, oh, well, there's all these cool cars here and here and here and here and here. And then I started to see them. And so, like, he lived in a neighborhood that was full of all these cool cars, and I lived in a neighborhood that was full of these cats. And we exchanged mental maps, and I started to be able to sort of see his world. That's a very trite example, but, you know, sort of psychogeography is the way that a place is mapped according to your own experiences or what's important to you. So we overlay the world with our own maps, our own ideas about what's important. Oh, this is where I had my bicycle accident. That corner has specific significance for me and not necessarily for somebody else. And so even when I'm walking around in the neighborhood, I'm walking through my own psychogeographical map. I mean, there's an overlay of me, of my own meaning, on top of, you know, the brick and mortar and sidewalk and tree that's there independently of me, right? And so my association with a place, so even the basics of the neighborhood where I'm walking around to, you know, do my shopping and take in my dry cleaning is a different place for me than it is, for you. And those examples start to get at what I mean by liminal mind, by being able to see the way that you, I, that we are well beyond the skin boundaries of self that in fact, you know, everything that we move through is it's a feedback loop. You know, it's kind of the Hofstadter I am a strange loop idea that everything is in a feedback loop between you and the outside world. And when I'm talking about liminal mind, I'm talking about being able to sort of simultaneously be in the neighborhood that's a neighborhood independently of me, and be in the neighborhood that's an overlay of my meaning onto it. You know, so being able to see how my imagination, my memory, my experience is out there in the world. In fact, the liminal. Zone between the world out there and the world in here, which is me, right, is kind of, you know, the senses. So, you know, the world out there, but it doesn't just go one way. It isn't just that the world out there comes into me for the senses. It's like I go into the world out there also, mm-hmm. you know, and so starting to be able to recognize that all of these overlays of self and world, you know, which I kind of got through lingering all this time at the liminal zone between waking and sleep
0: and starting to understand all of how much
1: we actually always exist in the liminal zones.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so wonderful. It's so porous. These things that we normally think of as being boundaries, they're just conceptual things. They're, They're not really as real as we make them out to be, or they're only as real as we make them out to be
1: exactly yeah but always keeping in mind because yes you you mentioned that the controversy about you create your own reality and and I do try to be mindful of that because you know I'm I'm a privileged middle-aged white lady you know and so yeah I create my own reality but my own reality is a very kind one you know and I always want to be mindful of the fact that the I am creating my own reality but it exists without me and even though if you're like when you're happy and newly in love and you know, you know, regularly getting laid well and whatever it is, people always say, gosh, you look great and the whole world looks great to you. So, you know, that spectrum, but say people who are having traumatic experiences in life because they live in war torn countries or because they had abusive parents or whatever, I think it's a deeply irresponsible trope of the privilege to pull out that you create your own reality in those circumstances. So I, I do try to be mindful of it. But, you know, as somebody said to me, when we were having this conversation, who grew up in an abusive household said, "Yeah, but as an adult, unfortunately, as long as I wasn't aware of how much they messed me up, it was their fault. But but once I once I become aware of it, it becomes my responsibility. You know, it can get tricky. You know, liminal mind ideas can get tricky. Anyway, when I'm talking about liminal mind, I really am trying to talk about the slipstream overlay. You know, and I still do it, though it isn't as active a practice as it has been. But I had a practice." called The Urban Dreamscape, where I was using psychogeographical practices to actually use the city as a dream journal. So I was using active imagination and this visual association to turn things in my neighborhood into dream journals. So I would take a dream, for example, and I would walk somewhere in my neighborhood and I'd be like, okay, it's going to go there. And I would break the dream up into kind of bite-sized chunks. So that, you know, I had like seven elements of the dream. And then I would... I'm looking at my window and I'm looking at one right now. So, you know, the dream starts on a tree and it goes up the tree and then it goes up the fire escape of the building across the street and across the cornice at the top of the building and down across some bay windows, you know, in order so that the sweep of my eye across the architecture goes in order of the images of the dream and then I sort of associate the dream with the building. And so what I was doing was I was using my neighborhood... As a dream journal, and really clarifying that kind of liminal mind of my dream actually is right there, on the buildings. You know, so I'm, I'm as I'm walking down the street, like you know, going to catch the streetcar, and I'm like, you know, blah 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 blah. Oh yeah, there's that dream, and, you know.
0: And I'm so then I'm,
1: you know, I'm back in it because you know I've, I've actually actively used the idea of psychogeography and dream.
0: I love that too. You know, using or recognizing our awareness as dictating our world, our reality. And, mm. and it connects with what you were saying earlier, that it's like this whole interrelationship of inner and outer. It goes way beyond just co-creation, because there isn't a clear separation between us and the outer world that we're in relationship with.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So when you think of it that way, then the notion of co-creation just seems very pedestrian.
1: Yeah, right, exactly. It's almost a simpler way to talk about it. And you were talking about the characteristics of what liminal dream space is like for people. And, you know, it's also true that for some people, liminal dream spaces, you know, there's darkness. There's some frightening stuff in there, and it can be used that way as well. So yoga nidra is a yogic practice that I would say is bringing sort of a guided meditation that brings people into the liminal dream space. You know, I I try to be careful with that one, too, because some yoga nidra teachers agree with me. Some think that calling it liminal dream space or calling it hypnagogia is not specific enough they want to use. But anyway, I think it's a practice of bringing into liminal dream space. And the i Institute is one of the largest yoga nidra schools in the U.S., and they're using it to treat PTSD, people who've been in the military, and they're using it to treat pain. Uma Dinsmortali, who has the Yoga Nidra Network in the UK, is doing a lot of work with women and childbirth. Yoga Nidra for pain and childbirth, for trauma, for like being able to go into these dream spaces, even if your experiences are dark and frightening. It's kind of a more safe space to be facing those things and interacting with them. So even for whom the liminal dream space is not the fairly blissful place that it is for me, and it seems like for you as well, it's still is an amazing place with a lot of applicability.
0: I would love for you to talk more about that. That sounds like it relates to the Buddhist notion of befriending your demons. And I right. I do actually have an experience that I, I've i had in a liminal state of claustrophobia, of feeling either being buried alive or being completely unable to move. Talk about how we can use those kind of dark and unpleasant and even terrifying experiences.
1: So sleep paralysis, as you mentioned, and that's an experience that most people have at least had and some people have quite regularly or various forms of it, like with your claustrophobia often tend to be liminal gym experiences, sometimes they're REM gym experiences, like being paralyzed. And that's a pretty common one. What the scientists will tell you is that the chemicals, like acetylcholine, and the chemicals that flood our body to paralyze us during REM so that we don't act out our dreams. Your mind is moving faster than your body, and so you know the REM breaks through. For some reason, your body is like, okay, well, it's REM, and so it floods your body, but it isn't. Or it might be REM, but it also happens in liminal dream space. And when you're in liminal dream space, your waking mind is still online, even though you are also dreaming. So you're experiencing both at the same time. And so you, your waking mind has enough understanding of the fact that you're paralyzed, and that's quite terrifying. And a lot of people, for them, the experience is, comes along with some sort of demonic. Presence. You know, in our culture, we have the succubus and the incubus, and a lot of Asian cultures have various forms of ghosts, or Hawaii, you've got the night marchers, or you've got the old hag or the cat that sits on your chest. In Italy, there's this weird little hobgoblin-y demon dude. Almost all cultures have some version of this evil presence. I've experienced it as some sort of dark force of evil person breaking into my apartment, and it's extremely terrifying. And one of the ways to work with it is the fact that it is a dream, and it's to actually actively bring on the experience. There's an exercise in the book for actively bringing on sleep paralysis, for example, and like 8% of the population has sleep paralysis pretty regularly. I'm not one of those people, but my friend and colleague, Ryan Hurd, who runs the Dream Studies Portal, is, and he wrote a book called Sleep Paralysis, and so I, I got my exercise From him that is actually actively bringing on the experience so that you're the one controlling it and always when you're the one in control it gives you a, a more power more of a sense of power over the experience so kind of counterintuitively what you're actually doing with these kinds of frightening experiences is you're trying to bring them on yourself you're trying to activate them so that you're ready You know, you're like, okay, I'm going to go into that scary space. It's just a dream. I'm the one who's making it happen. And so I'm going to go in there. And then when you're there, one of the things that you do as per Ryan is you're really trying to pay attention. Like you get curious, get curious about the demon. What color is the demon? You know, could you visually describe the dude who broke in your room? Like, what's he wearing? Try to talk to them. Like if you actually say something, what do they say in return? One of the things that Ryan says is that curiosity is the thing that overcomes the fear. And so one way of dealing with these frightening spaces is trying to get really curious about them. You know, try and bring it on yourself and, you know, kind of go into the space. So that's one way. The yoga nidra practices are another because with yoga nidra, you've got somebody who is helping guide you in an experience. So you can find the yoga ninja teacher who's going to give you a lot of images to meditate on. So you're sort of creating, like recreating your internal space, almost like building a new room, right? Recreating your internal space around the images that they give you so that when you go into these little dream spaces, you know, you're naturally you know, walking through a field of roses or whatever it is, you know. So again, with that sort of association, that's, that's another way to sort of deal with it. And, and actually, interesting ways to go into working with frightening dream spaces, the two senses that never get paralyzed are your sense of hearing and your sense of smell, because there's no reason in a REM dream that those would be dangerous for you. I mean, how you interpret them is one thing. So you can also keep a scent by you, people have done studies. Rose is great for counteracting frightening dreams. Lavender sort of helps you sleep or, you know, meditate to some particular soundtrack or even, you know, record your kids playing or your cat purring or, you know, whatever is comforting to you and, you know, have that playing while you're going into the dream space because you can still hear. yeah so these are all ways of going into it. You know, and again, going back to the idea that the curiosity is the thing. Like you mentioned befriending the demon, and you know some of the success stories that I know that people have had working with sleep paralysis has been approaching the demon. Hey, what do you want? You know, and I had one guy working with me who finally went up to the demon and said, what do you want? And the demon said, I've been trying to get your attention for years. I have this wise man over here who wants to you know, tell you some things, and then it turned into a whole different kind of dream for him. I
0: love that example in the book. And it just hit me that we have this knee-jerk tendency in our culture to look at the other as being dangerous. Mm. And if we could just talk to it, ask it something, get into a conversation with it, and experience it in a way that we can relate to it, then it's no longer the other.
1: Yeah, that's great. And that you know, we were talking a little bit about what is liminal mind. And one of the examples in the book is entre chien et is between a, a dog and a wolf, that's a French saying, and the idea being that at the crepuscular hour at twilight, which is the liminal time of day, you can't tell whether it's like a dog or a wolf, whether it's the familiar and safe or the unfamiliar and potentially dangerous. And part of what liminal mind is, is learning to look at everything kind of both ways, you know, instead of trying to say, oh, yeah, okay, Say familiar, foreign, dangerous, is to let yourself go into that twilight mode where you're not entirely certain. And of course, the twilight mode is also when we use the faculty of imagination most often, because that's when we actually think we see more than we're seeing, and we're filling in with the imagination what we're seeing. So that's the time of day when you're seeing a lot with your imagination. So yeah, you know, all of these are starting to loop back into what the idea is of liminal mind.
0: In yoga nidra, there's this step in the process of working with opposite polarities. Mm. Could you talk about that process and what we can get out of that?
1: So, working with opposites kind of does a, a short circuit to the reasoning mind, right? And it's one way to get us to sort of you know drop the forward grip of the logical ego right so if you can simultaneously like hold an acorn and you know there's a huge tree inside the acorn but the acorn is inside the huge tree you know to be able to to find the balance point between the opposites it kind of short circuits your ability to understand it with your reason and you start to have to understand it in different ways understand it poetically or understand it with your heart, as you said earlier, or, you know, understand it with your intuition. And so working with opposites, you know, in in some ways that's what Zen koans are trying to do. They're trying to short-circuit your ability to, you know, well, I'm going to solve that very rationally, because you can't, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I think in no what the working with opposites is exactly that, trying to get you to drop that idea that that part of your mind is going to solve it and it forces you to consider it or think about it or process it or, you know, whatever whatever the correct verb is in this context to feel it from a different place. And, again, that's that sort of liminal mind.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a practice that I learned many years ago was was to take two opposites and imagine them at the far ends of a really big room and, and have them rush at each other at full speed together and and smash into each other.
1: That's great. I love that one.
0: Yeah, I, I really love that because that had, like, this instantaneous effect of short-circuiting my, my brain.
1: You know, and that's the idea with the koans. The, you know, the Zen koan is supposed to give you the enlightenment at the moment because you're trying to get to the the moment before you form the thought, right? You know, when you're acting or reacting or being... You know, the again, the liminal space, the liminal space between the event and the moment that you form the thought, you know, and by trying to get you into that space, you know, you have to come at it in a different way. So with your opposites rushing at each other and crashing into each other in the room is a kind of a co-on. Mm-hmm.
0: So maybe you could walk us through a simple process of how we can get into liminal dreaming.
1: Great. I'll give you... One of the most basic exercises in the book. So what you want to do is, and again, it's easier to find hypnagogia if you're not practiced with finding either. If you're someone who naturally wakes up in the morning and very easily goes into that hypnopompic drift between waking and sleep, then just stay there (laughs) and linger there. Think of it as a place. you Know know that it's a liminal dream space, and that's going to be great. But if you're really trying to find the liminal dream space, it's easier to do with hypnagogia. So wait until you're sleepy. And most of us have an energy dip in the late afternoon. That's a good time. Lie down on your bed or sit back. If you fall asleep really easily, sit back on a couch or in, in an easy chair. You can also do it just when you're falling asleep at night. And you're unlikely to remember anything that happened in the experience, but you might remember having the experience. So wait until you're sleepy and lie down or sit back comfortably and exhale really deeply. And as you exhale, really relax everything. Relax your body, relax your mind. Like loosen your mind a little bit let the exhale take all of the tension and all of the waking energy in your body and wait for whatever it is that happens. So you might be, you know, you've got your eyes closed. Um, It might be points of light. It might be just a, a softening of your thought process. It might be imagination. It might be that you're, Imagination is, is it's getting a little easier to float into the imagination. I kickstart my hypnagogia liminal dream spaces with imagination pretty often. You know, go into your imagination space and kind of let the imagination start to flow. And as you exhale all of the waking energy from your mind and body, let it animate this beginning of the liminal dream, the points of light, or the whatever you're imagining. It also might be sound, right? You know, maybe you're hearing some sort of rushing sound, whatever it is. Let your waking energy animate that and it will take on a little bit more life of its own and you're kind of perceiving it, so it's kind of feedbacking through you. So take in with your senses, including the sense of imagination, what the liminal dream is exhale again in continuing to release waking energy from your body and mind. And then I call this exercise the feedback loop. Just let the energy sort of loop out of you and into the liminal dream and then let the liminal dream be the thing that you're perceiving. So sort of loop back into you. And by creating this feedback loop between you and the liminal dream, all of your waking energy is going into the liminal dream and so it starts to develop its own life and then you can just slide into perceiving it that exercise is called the feedback loop it's in the book it's also on my website liminaldreaming.com as are many beginning and more advanced exercises for finding liminal dream space and also for using liminal dream spaces and a lot of really what you're doing is just letting yourself slip into sleep and loosening body and mind so that you can linger in liminal dream. But that's a great exercise for finding space.
0: And in the book, you have, I think you have a whole chapter on practice. Could you talk about the value of developing and keeping a practice? And you also talk about using, for yourself, using liminal dreaming as a spiritual practice for yourself and also as a way of exploring consciousness. And as a form of meditation.
1: Mm -hmm. So I'm a huge believer in practices. And it almost doesn't matter what it is. I have a friend who's a car mechanic who, you know, for whom I would call it a practice. That's his work, but that's what he does when he's at home too and, you know, fixes cars and really gets in touch with motors and engines. And, you know, that's kind of his space. I mean, a practice is really anything that you devote yourself to doing with intention, right? I'm going to go in and do this. I'm going to make it a regular practice. Like I said earlier, you are what you practice being, and whatever it is you put your attention on is going to develop in your life, right? So, And you have to practice to be good at everything. I mean, even being you know, kind to your children or your partner or your parents or your cat or whoever it is, right? I mean, you have to develop a practice of mindfully doing that. So setting the intention that something is going to become your practice is a way of focusing attention, is a way of wooing whatever it is. And so the point of a practice, one of the points of a practice is that you choose whatever is meaningful for you. So for me, it's consciousness. Consciousness is the most, mm, mm, I, 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 I search for the right word. I mean, spiritual is, is a loaded word mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but probably the easiest on hand. But, you know, consciousness is definitely the most meaningful, the most important. You know, the thing that takes up most of my thought is thinking about consciousness. And so my practices tend to be around consciousness, around understanding mind, or playing with mind, or exploring with mind. But you choose what it is that's important to you, and then you devote yourself. I mean, I like coming up with my own practices. So things like using the using the neighborhood as my dream journal, or all of my various liminal dream practices, exploring liminal dreams, those tend to be the practices that I undertake. But I think it's so important to go into that space to decide to commit your attention and energy to something that you think is important because meaning is a human construction. And the way that you create meaning in your own life is by deciding what's meaningful and devoting a certain amount of your energy and attention to it. So, developing a practice around whatever that is is a way of bringing it into your life. It's a very simple equation. The more time you spend thinking about and doing something that's related to consciousness or love or whatever, the more of that is in your life. It's a very simple equation. And I think practices organize meaning in our lives and provide a a window into meaning. So I think that's a thing that everybody should be doing. And some some people have built in religious practices in their lives that are where they get meaning in that way, and that's great. And you can also add to those. It doesn't have to be about belief. That's important. You don't have to believe anything to develop your own practice. It's about what's meaningful for you. Your practice can be devoting yourself to the feeding and caring of your plants because you're interested in life or life force, the force that through the fuse drives the flower. Is that the phrase? You might be interested in life force. It might be love. You know, as a practice, I have a friend who, I, I turn him on to the idea of practices. And he made it a practice of any time one of his kids came into the room, he put down whatever he was doing and focused his attention on the kid. And that became his practice. You know, a thing that he devoted, no matter what it was he was doing, whatever mm-hmm. it was, and if one of his kids walked in the room he put it down and devoted his attention to one of his kids. That's a practice. And I think it's a really important thing for people to do, and even if you believe something and have, you know, a practice of prayer, you know, you can you can supplement that with other practices that are around what you think is important because it doesn't have to contradict, you know, your already existing religion. I was kind of, that was quite a little rant I just gave you that right there.
0: <laughs> that was great. I love that. I love the idea of putting attention on what we find to be most meaningful and making it a priority in our lives. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and by by creating a practice or undertaking an existing practice, you devote yourself to the idea of always bringing that thing into the day-to-day. And anything that you undertake as a practice is going to run into some of the difficulties that practices are meant to underscore doing something regularly. Oh, God, i got to do this regularly. Or when you go through periods of time when it doesn't seem to be giving you the juice that you want it to, like you're, you are can put down your whatever you're doing every time your kid walks in your room, the kid doesn't even notice, or the kid's just being a brat, or whatever it is, right? So <laughs> devoting yourself to any kind of practice over long term is going to bring up the difficulties that practices are kind of meant to bring up. One of the things that I get from people who criticize this idea of creating your own practice as the spiritual supermarket is the idea that it's too easy that you're only doing things that you like doing, and that you know uh, and that practices are also meant to underscore difficulty and I think no matter what the practice is, eventually you're going to run into whatever the difficulty is
0: mhm throughout my life I've had great difficulty maintaining practices. there have been times when i've maintained practices for many years, but somehow or other they they always manage to fall away. I always manage to either jump into something else or just indulge in, in nothing, <laughs> nothingness, <laughs> which, which is another <laughs> one of my favorite things. is, Me is too. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds, from the way you're responding, it sounds like you probably don't have that much of a problem with that, that we don't have to be really tough on ourselves to maintain, like, strictness with any quote unquote practice. Yeah, no.
1: I don't think we I don't think we need to. I mean, some people feel that they want that kind of discipline in their lives or feel like they need it. And if people have the sense that they need that, I think that's fine. But I think the difficulty will naturally arise on its own. I don't think that you necessarily have to seek it out. Anything that you've devoted yourself to doing it's gonna uncover the difficulty of Attention, right? Sometimes it's hard to keep your attention trained on even the things that you love the most. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like talking about with the hypnagogic experience, you know, even if you're just doing it before you go to bed and you never remember anything, but you remember that it was interesting, that seems, that seems fine to me.
0: And you also say that we go through all these stages anyway, whether we're aware of them or not. That's right.
1: We do. Everybody is a natural liminal dreamer you know i get a lot of questions about lucid dreaming because a lot of times people assume i'm talking about lucid dreaming which i am not i did have a practice of lucid dreaming at one point in my life but unless you're a natural lucid dreamer as some people are it's actually quite a lot of work you really have to you really have to stay on top of it and be devoting a lot to it but everybody is a natural liminal dreamer and it's one of those things like riding a bike once you have find the space once you realize where it is. When your arm jerks or your leg jerks, hypnic jerk, you're in hypnagogia or you're heading into hypnagogia, right? So we all know that experience. So everyone, everyone has the experience naturally. It's just a matter of learning to stop when you're in it and be like, oh, this is it, you know, and and having the consciousness of the experience as it's happening. But we all have it. Mm
0: -hmm. And you also say that liminal dreaming is a great way to approach lucid dreaming.
1: Yeah, it is. Liminal dreaming um, can be used as a bridge into lucid dreaming. I have two different exercises. In the book, I'm going to have a chapter about lucid dreaming. And the, The most traditional lucid dreamers are the Tibetan Buddhists who use lucid dreaming as a meditation practice And also as um practice for the bardo, for, as you were saying, the in-between zones. And the Tibetan Buddhists, the way that you learn lucid dreaming in that tradition is by first learning liminal dreaming. You learn how to be conscious of your hypnagogic state. And then that is the bridge into maintaining consciousness in REM, which can lead to the lucid dream. And so people who come to my workshops and classes, some of them, you know, they have various reasons, and some of them are definitely people who are trying, or working on their, you know, lucid dream skills and, and, you know, trying to learn how to bridge it with hypnagogia. And, you know, some people have taken it's extremely, it seems to me, but the practice of always being conscious, even in deep sleep. You know, so some Tibetan Buddhist masters are said to have maintained constant consciousness through all states. And learning to maintain your consciousness through hypnagogia is one of the ways that you do that. And, you know, when I was talking about pulling out the experience and starting to find stages of, you know, this percentage awake, this percentage of sleep, sometimes I can catch the moment that my body falls asleep all the way. Like, my body is all the way asleep. Like, in, in the hypnagogia, it's sort of, you know, halfway and halfway. But there's a place where... My body goes all the way asleep, sleep, and my mind is still aware. And that's a liminal dream space. And actually having one of those experiences is what made me start focusing my work in liminal dreaming. And so you can actually ride consciousness all the way through, from waking state through hypnagogia into a sleeping state and not, and not lose that grain of waking consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. And I love the way you talk about how you prefer liminal dreaming To lucid dreaming. I do. It's weirder. But also, there's the control and and personal agenda aspect of it, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think people drive to control their dreams. I find a little suspect. You know, again, it's the rational, waking mind. We all want to be in control everyone always wants to be in control everyone wants to be james bond you know always like cool and in control of the situation right and i think this drive toward always wanting to be in control is partly what makes us want to lose a dream we love the idea of controlling the dream whereas in the liminal dream space You are not you're not controlling that thing. It's moving too fast. It's too it's a wild ride. It's crazy free associative and it's very difficult to control. And so I love the idea of putting again putting down and I've said this several times during these conversations, putting down the rational mind. You know, not leading with, you know, the firm grip of the ego. Meditation is often about letting go the firm grip of the ego. In liminal dreaming, it's you know you you have to put it down, you know. So the experience is really unusual. That's one thing I love about it, you know. And in lucid dreams, even though they're, I mean, I love them when they naturally happen. They do naturally happen to me, you know. I, I you know I have a few every year anyway. And they just arise, and I do enjoy them immensely. But it's also more like waking, just weirder. Whereas liminal dreaming is an experience that's very unlike an experience, and you know in mindfulness meditation one of the core tenets is always having your awareness be of the unfolding now of the unfolding moment instead of thinking about what's happening next or thinking about what's in the past it's just like trying to keep your attention focused in the unfolding moment of now and in a liminal dream that's all there is all there is is the unfolding moments of now it's just a constant you know kaleidoscopic whirl of the unfolding moment of now so in that sense, it is like, very much like one of those meditations where you have the experience of of letting go of your internal monologue and of letting go of, of the really iron grip of the ego that holds us all so tightly.
0: Mm-hmm. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed this so much. Me too, immensely. <laughs> My guest has been Jennifer Dumper. She's a dream explorer and writer and the founder of the Aeronauticum. An international organization that explores the phenomenological experience of dreams as a means of experimenting with mind. And you also do lectures and lead workshops all over the world. And you're the author of this wonderful new book, Liminal Dreaming Exploring Consciousness at the Edges of Sleep. And why don't you give your website again? Sure. So liminaldreaming.com, I have a bunch of different ones, you can, but you can find them all of them
1: from anywhere. And since we're talking liminaldreaming, liminaldreaming.com is probably the easiest one to find. And I also tweet a dream a day as onerofer, O-N-E-I-R-O-F-E-R.
0: Well, again, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yes, it has been. Thank you for having me. And sweet dreams. <laughs> sweet dreams to you as well.
2: Why not we across the swooping plain? My ears hear a symphony Two mules, trains, and rain. The best is always yet to come. That's what they explain to me. Just do your thing. You'll be king If dogs run free
0: And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.
2: If dogs run free Why not me? Across the swamp of time My mind weaves a symphony And tapestry. Right. Oh winds which rush my tail to thee So it may flow and be To so each his own It's all unknown If dogs run free If dogs run free Then what must be Must be and that is all Love can make a blade of grass Stand up straight and tall In harmony With a cosmic seed True love needs no company It can cure the soul It can make it whole If dogs run free